0: Matthew six, nineteen through thirty-four. Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them, and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven, where moths and rust cannot destroy, and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness, and if the light you think you have is actual, actually darkness, how deep that darkness is. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you, do not worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for your heavenly father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing. Yet Solomon in all his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers, That are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things, saying, what will we eat, what will we drink, what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your Heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today.
1: Tonight we're going to talk about uh, Jesus' words to us about our fears, our worries, anxiety. I had a seminary professor, he was one of my counseling professors, Ed Welch, and he said this about fear. He said, fear is the perfect problem. No doubt it can be paralyzing and painful and life-dominating, but it's ideal in this. God reserves his most persuasive, beautiful, and comforting words for scared people. If you're familiar with fear, get ready to hear something good. So, those are good words uh, for us to have in our ears as we pray and start looking at this passage. Join me and let's pray. Father, um, I'm mindful of this as I stand up to open your word before my friends. I don't know the particular places. My friends are scared or afraid or stressed or insecure. I can speak vaguely and generically about fear and insecurity or this passage, but Father, would you deliver your word to the specific circumstances and situations, the specific patterns and manifestations of fear and anxiety in your sons and your daughters' hearts and minds. So we appeal to you to do that work And we know your heart for us and your love for us, and so we pray with expectation that you will do just that. We ask this in your Son and our Savior's name, Jesus. Amen. What comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing. About us. That's a quote from a guy named A. W. Tozer. He's an old theologian, and I came across that quote because I picked up this book that's made its way around RUF and our churches for the past year or so. Gentle and Lowly. I picked it up and read a chapter this weekend. It is written by a guy named Dane Ortland, and right after uh, this quote, he said this about why he wrote this book to begin with. He said, I wrote this book to help us leave behind our natural, fallen intuitions that God is distant and stingy, and to help us step into the liberating realization that he's gentle and lowly in heart. So he said he wrote this book to help us step away from those natural and fallen intuitions those suspicions about what God is like. And the reason those words struck me is because I was thinking that's exactly, that that puts such perfect words to what Jesus is doing in this sermon that we've spent our fall talking about. That's exactly what Jesus has been doing, is walking with his disciples to all these different areas and parts of our lives and looking at each of them individually and helping us see what the Father is really like and what life with him is like in that particular area. And intuition is a very carefully chosen word um, because intuitions are more like our real-time gut feelings about something, not our conscious thoughts about something, not your professed beliefs about something. But Ortland said he wrote this book, to help us move beyond our false or natural intuitions. And I would say Jesus, everything that he's saying in this Sermon on the Mount is aimed at helping push us forward beyond these natural fallen intuitions, which means you might think rightly about God. But the question Jesus is asking is, how do you feel in real time? Even right now, how do you feel about the heart of the Father or his heart towards you? What are your intuitions about that? So, what are some of the common unbelieving intuitions that that you and I, disciples of Jesus, and those who don't know Jesus particularly, uh, have of the Father? Or you could put it another way what are the most common conspiracy theories that Christians believe about the heart of their Father for them? What are the things that influence your thoughts about God? It was a long passage, but if you look down at this middle chunk, verse 25 through 30, if you had time to sit with this, and I encourage you to do it later, you would be able to answer that question. What are the most common kind of dark or fallen intuitions or suspicions that we have towards God? What you'll find when you read this is they're the same today that they were 2,000 years ago. The disciples of Jesus walking around Israel with him harbored Those same mixed intuitions about the goodness of the Father that you and I do, what are they? One would have to be, one that we kind of, when you read between the lines of the passage that leaps off the page, is this fear or suspicion that God is absent. Kind of like we're that kid at the Saturday morning soccer game who is always just so eager and happy to look over on the sideline in the middle of the game and see dad there with a smile on his face watching you, and you kept looking over to see, is he watching me, is he seeing me? And have you ever gotten the feeling about God that you kept looking at the sideline and you kept wanting him to be there and expecting him to be there, but you never saw him? You feel like he's not watching or paying attention or even showing up. Another one of the intuitions that comes out of these verses, 25 through 30 in particular, is that a fear that maybe God is indifferent to our lives that his inaction speaks louder than his words. And it's hard to ignore the inaction. Maybe another one is that he's inattentive to our needs. Yes, he knows our needs because he's God and he knows everything, but he's inattentive to them. And our prayers feel like they fall on deaf or disinterested ears. I know you could add to the list. I know you have your own suspicions or intuitions about him right now. I do. But like every conspiracy theory, there's just enough of an appearance of truth that we, it sounds believable to us. Those things, his inattention, his absence, his indifference, plus whatever you would add to that, there's just enough of an appearance of truth to that that it might just seem plausible to you and at least raises a real question of, is this true? Is this the way that he really is? The danger of letting in a conspiracy theory or a lie into your mind is that it confuses you about what's real and what's not, right? It blurs the line between reality and doubt or reality and suspicion or reality and conspiracy. And it can make us misinterpret everything. When these intuitions are present in us, when these conspiracies are even, ty- even in a small way believed by us, it can make us misinterpret who you think God is, what you think the heart of your Father is towards you, and it'll make you misinterpret who you think you are. We'll misinterpret all of it, especially our circumstances too. So these conspiracies or intuitions that, that you and I entertain at some level, that Jesus is assuming that his disciples who he was looking at right in front of him on this hill and his disciples here tonight, he's assuming that we're prone to believe these things. The effect that they have on us is that they undermine our confidence in our Father. And they sometimes even make us scared of him. And for that reason, these intuitions open up the door To paralyzing worry. They open up this big door kind of into our hearts and into our minds and our souls and in comes paralyzing fear. Now if we're going to maybe come down to earth a little bit and not be so philosophical or, or metaphorical, what do these godless interpretations of God, of ourselves, or his attitude towards us, what do they sound like? I think it's really any bullying or authoritative narrative in your mind, your heart, your emotions that ambushes you or sneaks in. And it argues that the father is really not who you thought he was. Or his attitude towards you isn't really what you thought it was. Or who you are to him isn't really what you thought it was. And this is a place where I don't know what that narrative sounds like to you, but it's an internal dialogue and it's in your thoughts a lot and it's what runs through your mind when you're losing sleep or when you're on the bus or when you just kind of daydream a little bit. It's the thing that comes back that undermines your confidence in him, that he's not really who he says he is. So that same professor, Ed Welch, um, you know, I was at a pretty scared and anxious season of my life when I was having his classes, and I was like, this is great. I mean, my counseling class, I'm not having to pay for counseling right now. I'm like getting it for tuition money, and, and I'm like hanging on every word that he says, but he would call anxiety a prophet of doom. A prophet of doom, and he would call it a prophet because anxiety, worry, whatever, fear specializes in the future tense. Anxiety is a phenomenon of the future. Even in what we would, we would think of as the most present and intense form of panic or anxiety, like a panic attack, what spirals that? What drives that? It's it's, it's what's happening now. What is what's happening right now going to bring next? What's right around the corner? I'm losing control. I'm breathing. I'm losing control. What am I spiraling into? And it's the panic about the panic that's coming. Anxiety is always about what's coming next. Its focus is on tomorrow. That grace will not show up with the resources that you're going to need in the situation that you're about to face, or the circumstances you're in. And it's just going to be you. Jesus alludes to this. It's why he talks so much about tomorrow. He he said first, anxiety is about tomorrow. Verse 34, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for itself, he says. In other words, he's saying, let tomorrow deal with tomorrow. Today, there's enough on your plate today. And I think he's saying, we've got a bigger battle to fight between right now and your bedtime than worrying about what all's coming tomorrow. And I think that bigger priority that we're going to spend the bulk of, of the next few minutes talking about is how to reestablish eye contact between you and your father in the midst of your fear, in the midst of the anxiety. So Dr. Welch called it a prophet because anxiety specializes in tomorrow. It tells you this is the way it's gonna be. This is gonna be a horrible situation, and here's why. It's gonna be a disaster with your roommate, and here's why. Or this relationship's going nowhere, and here's why. Or nobody's gonna ask you to live with them next year, and here's why. It's always talking about tomorrow and saying authoritatively, I know the future. This is the way it's gonna be. And it's a prophet of doom Because what it is specifically predicting, either through a question mark or through a declaration, it's specifically predicting a fatherless future, a fatherless tomorrow. And that's why it's terrifying. And that's why it spirals us into a much worse place. And if I could say just one more thing about it, I I would add that um, I think even worse is that anxiety positions itself as an alternative father to us. And it says, if you listen to me, I'll protect you. I'll keep you safe, pay attention to me, do what I tell you, obsess about me, fixate on me, pay attention to me, listen to me. If you don't listen to me, you're screwed. And you're on your own. Anxiety presents itself not just as a prophet to you, parading around as if it knows what's coming and as if it's telling you what's coming next, but it parades around as your dad, who's for you and loves you. And Jesus is beginning to strip down this pretender father and say, "What is this dad? What has this father ever brought for you? What, what good has he ever done to you?" Is he improving your life? Are you going to live longer? Your life expectancy is getting longer and longer because you're calmer and calmer and this father is really taking good care of you? Jesus is starting to say, this emperor has no clothes. Do you see it? Now, given where we've talked about this and where we're going, it seems a little bit odd if if you've been able to scan the passage. It can seem odd that in verse 22 through 23 that that's there. It seems like Matthew... It's like, I don't know what to do with this stuff. Jesus is talking about the eye, so let's just like smudge it in there and hope nobody notices. It seems really out of place, and it doesn't seem to fit with what comes before or what comes after, but it's strategically placed by Jesus right where it is for this reason. Jesus is asking you the question, can you see? Are you seeing your father the way I see him? Do you know him the way I know him? Is he your treasure? Is he your refuge? Is is the love of the Father the best thing you have going for you in your life? He's saying in a sense, is your interpretive eye, is how you're making sense of your present circumstances or yourself or God, is your interpretive eye, the thing that all the data's passing through, is it healthy? And is it letting in the light about who your father really, really is? Or is your eye unhealthy? And there's a cataract there, and it is filtering out the care and the goodness and the generosity and the kindness and the gentleness and the love of your father. When we see God differently than who he has shown us that he is, Jesus is saying, oh, how deep the darkness is, how pervasive the darkness is in your life, not just in your body, but how it spreads out into every corner of your life, the fear, the terror, the worry, the black hole that forms inside of us when we internalize and just coast along with these conspiracy theories about the very character of God and whether he really is or isn't for us when we hold on to these suspicions that he's indifferent, inattentive, or absent. And he's saying, I think Jesus would add, he's also saying, how deep is the darkness inside of us when you think of you differently than the Father thinks of you? How pervasive the darkness is, how the lights go out, and we're left scared in the dark. The worry, the loneliness, the aimlessness that comes when you think of you differently than your Father thinks of you. So Jesus is asking, how are your eyes? What do you think about and feel about your father right now? How are you interpreting you right now? And who's influencing your interpretation? Who's in your ear arguing for a particular way of of making meaning about who God is or who you are? So, whether we want to call it an unhealthy eye like Jesus does, or an unbiblical worldview, or unbelief, Jesus says it's dangerous because it filters out the care of the Father, specifically the care of the Father towards his people. And it propels us, it catapults us into an alternate reality. And that alternate reality, just for the sake of mem- remembering it, is an orphan reality. It's an orphan mentality, it's an orphan lifestyle. And you and I know this really well. We are absolutely, this is where we do life a lot, but it's a a mentality and an attitude of like, I'm all on my own. I am adrift, and I gotta figure out this confusing situation that I'm in. There's nobody to help me. I gotta get certainty. I've gotta get clarity about this situation or my future. It's all up to me. I gotta make ends meet. I gotta find ways to push my story forward in positive directions. I've gotta advocate for myself. I've gotta make myself seen because nobody sees me. Nobody's looking out for me, so I have to protect myself and guard myself from danger. And I've gotta fix myself. If that's the dominating reality of your life, does it make sense how life becomes a minefield of worry and anxiety? when it's all up to you everywhere, right? It makes a lot of sense why Thursday is going to be a scary Thursday when this is our interpretive grid, when this is what our eye sees. And that's the second point of what I wanted to talk about is what are the, what are the roots of worry? We've already been kind of, I mean, it's not going to be surprising what the roots of our, of our anxieties are. It's this orphan mentality that is filtered and edited out. God the Father and his... Big-hearted love for his sons and daughters. And it's not just that this orphanness is the root of our anxieties, it's the root of our frenzied attempts to secure an insecure tomorrow. All that stuff we just talked about means Thursday is unsecured. The hatches are not, in fact, battened down. Every stone has not been turned over and analyzed. Every situation has not been, you know, um, calculated and figured out how you're going to get through it. And so you've got to go do that. We've got to secure our future. We've got to make sure we're not going to be hurt tomorrow. You've got to make sure you make all the right decisions and that they're perfect decisions. And this is what Jesus is talking about. It's all through the passage. He says, worrying about what what you'll eat, what you'll drink, what you'll wear, or who you're going to live with next year, or whether you're going to get into your program or not, whether it's going to set you back in your schedule, where you're going to work this summer, what you're going to do after graduation, whether you're really pretty enough for anyone to want to date or cute enough for anyone to pay attention to, whether you'll ever have a family life again after your parents' divorce. Worrying as an orphan with no dad about these caliber things is what Jesus says dominates the minds of those who don't know God. And he also apparently suggests it could dominate the minds of those who do know God as their father. Because who's he talking to? His disciples on a hillside. And he says, again in these verses, I tell you, my disciples, to stop worrying about everything, whether you have enough food or drink or even enough clothes to wear, and he's saying you can belong to the Father, you can be a daughter of the Father, a son of the Father, you can be adopted into God's family, you can belong, have full access, have a seat at the table, have a room with your name on it, be missed when you're not there, but you can also be thinking of yourself and thinking of God the way pagans think of God. He's saying that's entirely possible. When a son or a daughter loses eye contact with a mom or a dad, they get scared and they freak out. Did you ever get separated from mom or dad at a store when you were little or at an airport or something? And you're like, panic immediately ensues because you feel out of your element and I'm in a scary place and they were my safety. They are safety. Where's mom? Where's dad? Or did you ever have a dream where you dreamed that you were all alone in the house and you couldn't find mom and dad? This is Jesus holding you, saying, wake up. Wake up. Wake up. It's okay. Your father is here. Your father's here. I had to do this three nights ago. Noah woke up in the middle of the game. I was like, "Mm, I got to leave this on. But Noah, it's okay. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. Daddy's here. It was like two or three minutes of him still huffing and puffing and crying and said he was scared that he dreamed that mommy and daddy were gone. I said, daddy's here, daddy's here, daddy's here. Jesus is saying, your father's here, your father's here. Open your eyes, open your eyes. He's saying he's here. What happens if you don't wake up, though? What happens if we're resistant to Jesus' words, if our eyes are not letting in the light and there's just darkness inside of us? What happens well, it's not this orphanness initially produces fear and anxiety and worry, but y'all are UGA students or you're in this Athens bubble and you know how to like make it happen. You know how to get it done. We're achievement people. And so it shifts from being scared to overachieving and just hyperactivity and making sure everything's going to work. And so we mistake orphanness for the way life's supposed to feel and we just get by and we begin to store up treasures on earth. We begin to stockpile. Some of you are prone to stockpile money. It's why you're in the major you're in, not because you love the field, but because you grew up in a financially insecure house and you don't want to live that way. You want money in the bank to keep the rainy day away so that you'll be safe because you really believe deep down you're an orphan. And it's all on you to secure your life. For some of us, it's social, it's social currency. And we don't want to be caught in the day, on the rainy day. And so we're building that up and we're accruing that. And every interaction with other people is an audition or to try to get something from them to store it up. We're always asking our friends, are you okay with me? Because we have to have that approval. We mistake orphaness for the way it's supposed to be and we just get by. But here's the thing, we're also smart people and we know that moths and rust ruin our treasure, and so does inflation with our bank accounts, and so does gossip with our reputation, and so does best friends moving away and graduating, and losing touch ruins our relationships, and so we're scared, and we're frantic, and we're insecure even as we try to re-secure our lives, and this is where the spiral comes from, as we work harder and harder to feel safe, and we feel less and less safe. This is why even billionaires feel like they don't have enough. And they need a little bit more. Because it doesn't matter how much money you have, it's a heart issue of trying to secure tomorrow so that you're okay. And our hearts get attached to these things, and we begin to love these things. And what we used to think of as a luxury or icing on the cake that's nice now becomes, I have to have this to be okay. This is the other element of anxiety, that anxiety is the flip side of love. You most fear the loss of what you most love. You most fear the loss of what you most love. And so worry is actually a really helpful tool. It's the best indicator you have about what your heart is actually most in love with. Where are you scared? What are you most scared to lose? That's what you love the most. That's what's mastered you. That's the Lord whose knee where you bow your knee. That's the kingdom you live in. And again, Jesus isn't coming at you hot and saying, just screaming at you. Jesus is saying, wake up. Wake up. That's the reason you get so worried. That's the reason you're so scared of tomorrow. Wake up, you have a father. The most scared I've ever been that I can remember. And I'm not talking about like bad thunderstorm when I was a kid or something like that. Like the most scared I've been for a sustained chronic season in my life was the few years after I graduated undergrad and had no earthly idea what I was going to do with my life and was humiliated to keep telling people that when they asked, what are you doing? I said, I'm 24 and I have not even the first clue of what I'm doing. And I was scared. Am I going to make the right decision, get in the right grad program, go in the right direction, or is this going to be more wasted time going in the wrong direction? And I wanted clarity, and I wanted certainty, and I was afraid. And the other time that I was most scared for the most amount of time was dating. I've shared this story a good bit with y'all, but Anna's the first girl I dated, and I never knew what was normal and what was not, or how to do anything, or is this the right way or the wrong way, or what does this all mean? Or do these feelings I'm feeling, or that she's feeling, or this encounter that we had, or argument that we had, what does it all mean? And I was paralyzed with fear and anxiety about, I'm out of my league. I don't know what to do. These are like the highest caliber decisions of your life. Who are you going to marry? And I was just frozen about, Lord, I, I feel so scared and exposed. This is the rest of my life. And Anna and I realized over time that Ben had a Jesus problem, not a dating problem or not an Anna problem. I had an orphan problem. I thought I lived in a world all by myself where I had to figure out the Rubik's Cube of what it all meant. And if I made the wrong decision, I was all by myself, all alone. So friends, what's the cure to anxiety? What's the cure to it? It is clarity but it's not the kind that I always wanted of God just saying, you're supposed to be an engineer and you're supposed to work for this, you know, this engineering company in Dunwoody. That kind of clarity is not what you actually really want. What you really want and what you really need is clarity about who your father is and where he is and what he thinks about you. When I got clarity about that, Guess what? Anxiety started to evaporate out of my life, and we, Anna and I, were able to move forward again. It's when I got clarity about where Jesus was going to be the day after I made the biggest decisions of my life, and who the Father was going to be toward me the day after I committed myself. That's when freedom came, when I remembered I have a father and I'm not an orphan, And that's the clarity, friends, that you really need. Not the clarity you think you want, the cheap clarity. Somebody tell me what supposed to do with my life. You want to know who your Father is. You want to have eye contact with Him and see His favor towards you. That's true clarity. And it's what Jesus is giving you in this very passage. He's holding you. He's saying you have a Father. He's opening your eyes. He's saying open them wider, open them wider. Not all the light's getting in. There's darkness still yet to be shown on by the character and the heart and the love of your father. Jesus is correcting your interpretation of your father and your interpretation of you and who you are to him. So how does Jesus reinterpret the father? This is where I I love to imagine what it would be like to sit there with him and random props or like a bird flies around and everybody saw it and Jesus is like, like the bird that just flew over you or like the weeds that are right by your knee growing out of the grass, And he's saying this stuff, verse 25 through 27, you have infinitely more of God's heart than those silly little birds, but look how regularly the Father feeds them and cares for them. Look how he cares for them, and they matter to him so much less than you. Let me rephrase that. Christian, did you hear in what Jesus says here that God the Father looks at you and says, you are valuable to me? So how do you think about your Father? That he would look at you and say, you are infinitely more valuable to me than the brilliant things that you take pictures of and post on Instagram because they're so amazing. You matter to me. Do you think that you are worth the demanding care and provision that God the Father has to provide for you? He thinks so. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave Jesus up for us, how will he not also give with Jesus, give us all things? First Timothy 6.17, God richly provides us with everything to enjoy. James 1:17 Every good and perfect gift comes from above from the Father. New parents joyfully reorient their entire lives and schedules around the life of their new needy little baby that needs them around the clock. Do you believe that your God has fundamentally reoriented his life around your round the clock needs? Some of you might have a little theological pushback here you your like, Ben, you sound like you're making us the center of the gospel. No, I'm not. What is the incarnation? What is Jesus becoming man and living among us and redeeming us and rescuing us other than God reorienting his life around your needs? What is the cross of he who is innocent becoming guilty and cursed that you might become innocent and righteous? What is that other than God reorienting his whole life around the needs of of his sons and daughters, or those he would make his sons and daughters. Verse 28 and 30, Jesus is talking about clothing. He shifts the metaphor, and he says, look at the flowers, and we say clothing, what clothing? Like, I can go to the thrift store and get a ton of clothes for a little bit of money, or I can shop online and get a ton of clothes, but when you're poor, when you don't have much money, clothing is a billboard that tells everybody else everywhere you go, I have no money. I have no one to take care of me. Have you ever been the kid who showed up on the first day of school and you didn't have new clothes or new shoes? You didn't have the school supplies? You feel shamefully underdressed and humiliated like everybody gets to see that my family's poor? And Jesus says, look at the flowers, look at the, little, the stupid little weeds growing up in this grass. Look at them the biggest budget in all of Israel, and the best designers in all the land couldn't replicate what God did in this weed. How much more wonderfully does he care for you, who are not a weed to him? Friends, where I want to end is two remaining stubborn places of darkness that I think keep even some of us still from hearing this stuff and from it really getting inside of us from it really getting inside of us. There are two stubborn areas of darkness, and I, I'd say they're this. The first is uh, the Incredibles quote, if everybody's special, nobody's special. Some of you have grown up hearing this stuff, and you think, but Ben, it, with this gospel stuff, it's like all of God's sons and daughters get a trophy, and when everybody gets a trophy, it's not special anymore. And you say, well, God loves you, and he loves you, and his heart is full of love for you, and you too, and you and you. And by the 10th or 11th time, you're like, isn't it getting diluted a little bit? doesn't seem so special anymore. Well, I have two friends, Justin and Jonathan in my past, who um, had, we had this weird encounter of a lot of different people realizing at the same time we all thought we were their best friends. With Jonathan, he was an RUF buddy of mine from back in the day, and uh, at his bachelor party, we're all around and We all, these were all guys, we loved each other really well. At his bachelor party, we're encouraging him and just trying to pour into him the night before his wedding, and what, I, what we all realize in the same moment is every guy here thinks he's Jonathan's favorite. Nobody, I, it still remains to be seen who his best friend was. And Justin, with a going away party that happened recently, and all these people are getting up and giving speeches, and, you're, and it occurred to me like everybody here thinks they're the special one. I think when the new heavens and the new earth come, every single son and daughter of the living God's going to be walking through there for eternity thinking, I'm his favorite. I'm his favorite we got something special. The apostle John thought it, and he wrote about it, the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter thought it, James thought it, and I think all the others did too. Jonathan and Justin had a capacity to love and a fullness of love and a generosity and a presence about them that everybody felt like they were the favorite. How much more God the Father for his sons and daughters that he sent his son to gather. It is an undiluted love. That's one stubborn darkness that I hope and pray God the Father overcomes even tonight. And he says, you can all be my favorites because to love one child in no way dilutes my affection for the other. The last thing is that some of us have been hearing this our whole lives and we just think that when you when you think about God loving you, you just think of a tolerant God has to love me. It's his duty. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, and like he has to love me, he tolerates me, he certainly doesn't like me, but he might kind of like love me in some Bible way. But let's do some of Jesus' lesser to greater logic, where he says, Consider the stupid little birds or the little weeds, how much more? Let's do some of that as we end. Who is the most gentle person you've ever met? Who's the most approachable friend you have? Who's the wisest mentor you've ever had? Whose words you could hang your life on? Who's the most responsive friend you have? They always call you back, always text you back. Who sees you the best? Who knows you the best? Who's the most generous person you've ever been around? They share with you liberally and never expect anything paid back. Who's the person on this planet you are absolutely convinced is for you and always will be? And my question to you, is God the Father more or less wise than that wise mentor? Is he more or less attentive than that 21-year-old college roommate you have? Is he more or less for you than that old coach in high school? Does he know you better or worse, see you more or less? Is he more or less responsive than that friend who's always by the phone? He is everything you're looking for everywhere else, and he's yours. And friends, if you do not have this father, if you are who Jesus refers to in this passage as an unbeliever, don't you know that God the Father sent God the Son that he might make you sons and daughters of this Father? That's what he says in John 1, that all who look to Jesus and believe in him, Jesus gives the right to become children of God, That is the promise that he makes to you. He says, you do not have to live this anxious, fearful, orphan life. Where has it gotten you? Come to me that you might know the Father and have him too. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we've talked about a lot, and Holy Spirit, we're relying on you to apply it now and to carry it into Thursday with my friends and with me to make it come alive as we think about you in the days and weeks ahead. We pray this all in Christ's name. Thank you.